0: Hi, this is Ben Lola back to the Bible Canada. Today we continue with Dr. Newfeld's current series, The Greatest Sermon Ever Preached, with a message called Murder Versus Reconciliation. Now please turn with me in your text to Matthew chapter five, verse 21 to 26.
1: I'm reading Matthew 5, 21 to 26. You've heard that it was said of those of old, You shall not murder, and everyone who murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. You know, some time ago, a classified ad appeared in a newspaper. It said, wedding dress for sale, never worn. We'll trade for a 38 caliber pistol. Now, I know that's funny, but I wonder how many of us have said something like, you know, I could just kill that guy. I think all of us have said something like that. Oh, I know there's a a world of difference between the thought and the action, and there is. But let's come back to that notion at the end of this address. Today in our study of the Sermon on the Mount, we begin a section in which six times Jesus says, you have heard it said, but I say unto you. We've noticed that in verses 17 to 20, they present for us the key to understanding what Jesus is teaching. According to verse 17, Jesus stated that he had not come to abolish the law, and that meant that whenever he says, as he does in our passage, you have heard it said, you shall not murder, but I say to you that he's not taking issue with the law of God or of the Old Testament. He has not come to abolish the law, but he will explain its true intent, and he will fulfill it. Second, as we've noted from verse 20, that Jesus is taking issue with the Pharisees and the way they're teaching. And so when Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not murder, he's drawing attention to what the Pharisees have taught regarding murder, and he's about to take exception to that. And by the way, those of old are the expounders of the law, the ancient rabbis that the current Pharisees agreed with. Now, of course, the Pharisees were simply quoting the sixth command, which is stated in Exodus 20, verse 13. It simply says, you shall not murder. That's a simple command, simple to understand, and you might wonder how anyone could have disagreed with what that meant. But from that command in the Bible, the Pharisees added the words, anyone that murders will be liable to judgment. No doubt they taught that from passages like Genesis 9 verse 6, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. See, the Pharisees taught that murder was to be brought before a court of law, and in that law, not all murderers were to be put to death. See, unlike Canadian courts, Mosaic law did not make a distinction in terms of premeditation. I mean, we consider it a far more serious thing if a man planned a murder as opposed to the one who committed a murder out of the heat of passion. But the ancient Hebrews never asked, how long has this person premeditated this murder? Rather, the ancient Hebrews asked, was this murder intended or not? And so courts would determine intent and pass judgment. Was a weapon in the person's hand? If it was, the murderer shall be put to death. That, said the Pharisees, is what the law teaches, and that's what they taught. Now, what was wrong with that? Why would Jesus take issue with that? Aren't they precisely right? This is what the law taught. Why not just affirm it and say, on that matter, the Pharisees and I agree. But he doesn't. He begins verse 22 by saying, but I say unto you. So why does he do that? The answer is not so much what the Pharisees said, it's what they left unsaid. So let's examine what's missing. Genesis 1.26 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Now, from that ancient creation account, we learn two things of the nature of man. First, man alone is in God's image. We are a reflection of some of the attributes of God. And secondly, Because man is in God's image, man as an image bearer of God is given the command to rule over the creation on behalf of God. Man is to act as God's representative on earth, bringing proper rule and dominion to the creation. So what does all that mean? Well, first, it means that God thinks that all human beings made in his image have intrinsic value. There's an order in life in which human beings stand at the apex. They are the crown of his creation. And that, by the way, that's what's denied in what I call the national religion of our country. See, the religious ideals taught in the schools in this country teach that man is not unique. Instead, modern secular religion teaches that we are the product of impersonal, random, purposeless chance and not the result of design and the image of the creator. If man is the product of chance, then man has no intrinsic value and no intrinsic purpose, and then the commands against murder are treated very differently. That's why someone can take a life, and the world doesn't stop in our culture, and we should demand an accounting on the basis of the worth of that life. See, eventually the religion of random chance, purposeless creation has consequences. That's also why we can abort unwanted, unborn children. They have no intrinsic value. Their only value is if we want them. That's also why we're now having a movement in this country to allow legally assisted suicide. For if your own life is not valuable to you, well then end it. It has no intrinsic value. That's why we will eventually see a, a war against the elderly, because we will not see them as rich in resources, but a drain to our health care system. See, that's the logical outcome of the secular evolutionary religion, a religious system that's now enshrined into law. See, whenever human life is treated not as the special project of God, then the taking of a dog's life is akin to a human life. And if I might add one more thing, that's why many secular families no longer have funerals. For they live and die without a sense of the divine, and so human remains are disposed of in the same way as the remains of a dog. Where there is no image of God in this thinking, we live and we die like dogs. See, wouldn't the Pharisees have felt just like Jesus on these issues? Well, yes. They would have had the very same concerns if they had seen the kind of wanton disregard for life that exists in our culture. But let's go one step further. Do You remember the first murder, Cain kills Abel. How did that happen? Well, it begins with jealousy, and then the jealousy moves to anger. And then God confronts Cain, not at the moment of murder, but at the moment of anger. In Genesis 4, verse 6, God says to Cain, why are you angry? And then in the next verse, God tells Cain he needs to master his own sin. It is at this level that God begins to deal with him, master and defeat your anger. See, anger that is the murderous kind of anger treats with contempt that which is made in the image of God. It's a mind attitude, and the Pharisees exemplified that. Think of their attitude towards Gentiles and Samaritans and women. They were contemptuous of them. The very principle which undergirded the command against murder, that is, the value of human life, had already been rejected by them. So keeping the outward command, they denied the basis upon which the command stood, that deep abiding respect for life. They only taught as much of the command as was necessary so they would not be condemned by their own attitudes. And that's what Jesus confronts. So let's see what Jesus actually teaches. Notice he points out the relationship between murder and a certain kind of anger. In the case of murder, the law taught that the outcome would be the death penalty administered in a human court of law. But when it comes to murderous, contemptuous anger, well, no human court of law can deal with that. But a heavenly one can. And so Jesus warns first of the judgment, which he means God's judgment. And then he warns of the council. And that must not mean the Sanhedrin or the Jewish ruling council. I think he means instead God's council. And then third, the hell of fire is the last in his series. You know, the term hell is the word Gehenna. It refers to a valley of Hinnom, a horrible place where in Israel's past during the reign of King Manasseh, Human sacrifices were made there. Children had been slaughtered to the pagan god Moloch. Uh, king Josiah, a righteous king, desecrated the place. And so according to the Jews, the place was rendered permanently unclean. And so the Jews made it into a rubbish pit where the fire was constantly burning. And Jesus used this as a fitting symbol where the horror and endless burning is never extinguished. Jesus spoke of that place in Mark 9:48, where their worm does not die, and the fire is never quenched. And Jesus said, if you disrespect human life by vilifying your neighbor, you're in danger of that very kind of hell.
0: Thou shalt not murder seems on the surface to be a fairly basic commandment. So why would Jesus disagree so strongly with what the Pharisees were saying? In this introduction, Dr. Neufeld helps us to shed some light on the deeper context and meaning of this Old Testament law. We see that murder is a heart issue, revealing the emotion of anger that drives someone to commit this act. But how should we understand the connection between anger and murder? Well, we'll find out more right after the break. In these challenging days, there are so many voices calling for our attention, but nothing is more essential than allowing our Bibles to speak to our lives and to be the compass that guides our choices and decisions. Psalm 119.105 reminds us, your word is a lamp to guide my feet and a light for my path. Throughout 2021, we pray that the Bible would be your compass guiding, encouraging, even challenging you in your walk with Jesus. In times of uncertainty and times of instability, the Bible will light your path. Every resource we create and share with you is designed for that purpose, a trusted guide for your daily walk with Jesus. This month, we feature Dr. Neufeld's series, The Greatest Sermon Ever Preached, a study of the Sermon on the Mount. How should we understand this great teaching of Jesus? How should we apply Jesus' words to how we live our lives? the greatest sermon ever preached, a study of Matthew five to seven. So tune in every weekday on this station or visit us online to discover all the different opportunities to access all the free Bible teaching resources available to you. Bible teaching you can trust. Your gift of support would mean so much this month So for more information, visit us at backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425.
1: You may have noticed that several times I've used the term murderous anger rather than just anger. That's because not all anger is sin, but some is. Now, how do we know that? Well, for one, in Ephesians 4.26, it says, Be angry and do not sin. And that's a command. Be angry, but have the kind of anger that does not sin. See, Jesus was angry. Notice Jesus in the temple driving out the money changers. He's angry at them. Or if you want name calling, how about the names that Jesus called the Pharisees? You hypocrites, you brood of vipers, you blind guides. These are angry words. I say this because of all the silly things that are said today. People say, you know, if Jesus is teaching us that we need to respect human life, that must also mean that we respect the value of all choices that human beings make. We are to have no enemies, but simply to have happy thoughts about everyone, regardless of what they do. Pass no judgment. Just respect differences. Take down all the barriers between people. Now, I love a poem that was written in the 1800s by a man named Charles McKay. Listen to it. He writes, You have no enemies, you say. Alas, my friend, the boast is poor. He who has mingled in the fray of duty that the brave endure must have made foes. If you have none, small is the work that you have done. You've hit no traitor on the hip. You've dashed no cup from perjured lips. You've never turned the wrong to right. You've been a coward in the fight. And if there's anything in the life of Jesus that it teaches me is that this man was no coward in the fight. He was at the center of a great fight. That's why he had enemies. You see, to be angry over unrighteousness is a virtue. Not to be angry over unrighteousness is a character defect, a flaw, one that Jesus did not have. So what's the difference between unrighteous and righteous anger? Well, unrighteous anger is self-focused. It's the kind of anger that James spoke about in James 4, 1-2, where he writes, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. See, unrighteous anger is anger over frustrated desire, not getting for yourself what you want. And the anger bubbles out and then, I must have what I want for me for my outcomes. But righteous anger is just the opposite. It wants what Jesus spoke of in the Beatitudes that is hungering and thirsting after righteousness. That primarily is the difference between the two. And as Jesus points out, when we belittle a person rather than fight for a principle, we display hatred of God's creation. When we belittle someone in order to prove ourselves superior, we have the inner anger and inner hatred of the creation that is the same driving motivation behind murder. So you can fight for God's glory. You can fight for truth. You can fight for justice. You can fight for righteousness. You can fight for the glory of God and still deeply respect human life. All anger is not sin, but some, indeed most of the anger in the world today, is. It comes simply out of sinful desires that people have. Now, all murder begins with murderous anger. No murder ever came from other sources. Let me repeat that for it's vital. No murder ever came from righteous anger. See, righteous anger will make you persecuted, as Jesus reminded us in the parables. We will be hated and killed. You know, I say that because we have been lied to. We've been told that people who hold biblical principles and who fight for them are the cause of anger and mistrust in the world. Not so. It's precisely the opposite. Righteous anger leads to a deep abiding respect for life. But sinful anger, anger based on things we want at all costs, takes people to hell. And that's precisely what Jesus taught. When you want to put someone down, calling them a fool in order to discredit them and sideline them, you are in great danger. But notice in verses 23 to 24 that Jesus is speaking about offering your gifts on the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you. He's indicating that there is a relationship between murderous anger and the way in which we worship. Now, we might have expected that Jesus would have said, if you're going to worship and are angry with your brother, go be reconciled. But did you notice he said it the other way around? You are going to worship, and as people did in the time of Jesus, to sacrifice and to bring a gift. And as you go, you're not angry with anyone, but there you remember that someone is angry with you. See, at this point, it's very important to sort out exactly what Jesus meant and what he didn't. If every time you go to worship, you have to go through a list of all the people who might have a disagreement with you on any matter, and then you quickly make phone calls on the way to church, I suspect that a great many of us might never show up to church in the first place. See, does Jesus mean come to terms with everyone who is angry with us, or does he have a specific kind of a person in mind? See, that's the question. Well, as we continue to read, we find out he has a very specific person in mind. Verse 25, Jesus specifies who he's talking about. The person in his mind is so far unreconciled that someone is taking him to court. Furthermore, Jesus makes the matter quite clear that the outcome of the trial is such that the worshiper he is speaking of is going to lose his lawsuit. When it's all done, The judge will hand that person over to the guard, and the worshiper Jesus has in mind is going to be put into prison. Furthermore, Jesus seems to indicate the nature of the dispute has something to do with money, for he says, you'll not get out until you've paid the last penny. And so clearly, the nature of the dispute between these two people involved the worshiper harming the person in question financially, and that matter led to a dispute. And so we might read what Jesus said as follows. If you're on your way to worship and as you go, you remember there's someone whom you've wronged and you've harmed. And the reason you're not reconciled to that person is because you are determined not to right the wrong. You're determined to let the other person live with the loss that you have inflicted upon that person. And if that's you, you'd better rethink that. See, that person is angry with you because you've done them harm. Now, you might say, I'm not angry. I'm ready to reconcile with that person at any time. But Jesus stops this kind of hypocrisy. See, it's so easy for the person who has wronged another to say, I have no anger issues. Well, of course you don't. You are the person who did the harm and you've used your power to oppress the other. The person is angry with you because you have been unrighteous towards that person. And so Jesus takes the issue of murder past the anger we might feel towards someone else and brings it to bear on those whom we have harmed, those who are angry with us. If we are unrighteous in the harm we have done and will not set the matter right, then regardless of how tranquil we might feel on the inside— Our injustice towards the abuse that we have rendered to another is just another kind of murder. And so says Jesus, you have heard it said by the Pharisees, you shall not murder, and if you do, you're going to be judged. But the Pharisees have not told you the whole truth until you learn to respect human beings as people created in the image of God, that when we abuse them or treat them with harm, when we do them harm and have no attitude of heart that's changed, we have become a murderer. We have showed our hatred of them and of the God who made them. For men murder men because they are in the way. And if you act that way, well, Jesus said, you are in danger of the hell of fire. You are in danger of eternal damnation. See, instead of doing away with people we don't like, Look for relationship. Look for reconciliation. And even when reconciliation is not possible, as far as it depends upon you, live at peace with everyone and practice righteousness.
0: Wow. Anger is a much more serious issue than perhaps we might have thought. In Jesus' teaching on murder versus reconciliation, we discover how much danger we fall into when we abuse anger towards another person who is created in God's own image. For this is really the heart of the issue. It goes beyond just the physical act of taking a life. This has been a tough but important lesson for all of us to understand and apply. I hope you've been encouraged by today's teaching from Dr. Newfeld. So please listen again tomorrow for another installment of this series on the Sermon on the Mount as we tackle what it means to honor God with our body from Matthew chapter 5. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Since 1957, Back to the Bible Canada has provided excellent and trustworthy Bible teaching for Canadians. Our efforts have helped transform the lives of thousands of Canadians from coast to coast to coast. In this new year, perhaps you'd consider joining our ministry team as a monthly partner. Our monthly donor program, the 1119 Fellowship, provides sustainable support to all the Bible teaching and engagement ministries of Back to the Bible Canada. Consider how you might invest in these efforts as people of all ages and stages of life open their lives up to discover more about Jesus in the pages of the Bible. Your partnership in 2021 will provide the opportunity to sustain and expand the reach of Bible teaching across Canada and beyond. To learn more about the 1119 Fellowship Program, the benefits of joining, and to become a member, visit backtothebible.ca slash fellowship or give us a call at 1-800-663-2425.